Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. As House Speaker Pro Tem, John Weeman is often at the table during critical discussions about his caucus and policy. And the St. Charles County Republican has a lot to say about how Republicans are faring in 2019 and what could be the big issues that come up in the last few weeks of session. Weeman is the latest guest on Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. I am in the historic house lounge for our latest guest on the podcast, and, and he is... Uh, John Weeman, Speaker Pro Tem. Thank you very much. First time on the show. Yes. You, you represent a district that includes St. Charles County. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Uh, can you just give us a sense of the, the boundaries of your district for people that may not know? Certainly. My district is located in St. Charles County. Uh, the area that I represent is of St. Charles County is the, the city of Cottleville, uh, most of Weldon Spring, city of Weldon Spring, and then I have a portion of uh, the southern portion of O'Fallon, Missouri, and then a little bit of St. Peter's. And my understanding is before you decided to run for the legislature, you're kind of in the insurance industry. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. I'm still in the insurance business. Yeah. I, I've been at uh, my own insurance brokerage firm for over 10 years. I have my own firm. And then prior to that, I've been in the insurance business for a total of uh, 21 years. That is quite experience uh, in the insurance I, industry. I do have a little bit of knowledge in the insurance business. So. Tell us a little bit about what got you interested in Missouri politics. St. Charles County has obviously a, a become a very Republican uh, bastion, but I also know that it can get quite competitive, especially when a seat opens up. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about your journey to this point in time. It, that's a great question. Uh, it started really when I was a young man. I, I actually grew up in Phelps County, Missouri, uh, which is Rolla, St. James area. That's where I grew up. Which is actually a part of the state which uh, St. Louis Public Radio transmits into. I, I know it does. Yeah, we uh, bought the station, and yeah. some people were happy about it, and some people were not happy well, about they'll it. They'll learn to love it. Yes. Uh, and we also have a dedicated correspondent in Rolla now, too. Oh, that's great. So, Well, anyway, so that's where I grew up. My parents were, were involved in uh, Republican politics uh, when I was a young man, and so naturally I just was was attracted to it and, and was very interested in politics. And then um, my father actually ran for uh, state senate in 1990, and uh, I ran his campaign. It's my first campaign I had ever run, and uh, he didn't win the general election. He won the primary but lost it in a general election. And where election. was this? This was in the 16th senatorial district back in 1990 um, in, in Phelps County. It was right. the 16th senatorial district. And so from that point, I just kind of got the bug and actually worked for Roy Blunt for a period of time when he was Secretary of State and when he ran for governor. And, and then from there, I just was involved in, in, in college Republicans and just I've always been involved politically 
since a very young age. And once I got done with school at, at Mizzou, I kind of took a step back a little bit just to kind of focus on my my uh, my career and uh, also I was just got married and was trying to get myself uh, established in 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 Missouri and so at that point uh, just kind of worked on building up my business and, and trying to take care of my family and I had you know a young family at the time and was involved in the party stayed stayed engaged in the Republican Party and then at that point, uh, when the time was right, I chose to uh, run for state rep. And when was that? 2014. 2014 is when I when I ran. Was that? Did you have to face a primary, or did you were you were you able to just go into the general election? Out of no, I, as you know, in St. Charles County, it's a very competitive county when it comes to Republican po politics, and so I did have two other uh, primary opponents that ran against me, and and both were uh, young men that uh, were very interested in getting involved in politics, and I was fortunate enough to. To, uh, to beat out those two to, to win the nomination. This, this may seem like a strange question, but I've noticed that there are like several different archetypes of legislators. Some are very young legislators who get elected when they're 25, 26, 27 before they're professionally established. Then there are some who are older, who have retired and are kind of doing legislating after their careers are over. Mm -hmm. you're, you're kind of in a position where you jumped into it when you're still in the middle of your career. And I've met a lot of yeah. uh, lawmakers like that I, it, it kind of makes it so that your time is divided between your career and legislating, but it also, I think, keeps you like grounded in the real world. So that's been my observation yeah. of others. What, what's been your observation of? Being I, in that I agree with you, Jason. That's you, you see, unfortunately, and that's just because of the way it is. Um, when you run for political office, you are making a sacrifice. Uh, you're a public servant. There are sacrifices. I, I sacrifice being away from my family. I sacrifice from being away from my business uh, to do this job. I'm certainly not doing it for the pay. And, and so unfortunately, those individuals that are my age, I'm, I'm 51, um, we're, at the, we're at the height of our earning potential. We're, uh, a lot of us are, you know, if we're successful, they're running a businesses or you're, you have your own business. It, it, that's a big challenge. It's a big, big sacrifice. And so you don't see many of us up here. And it's, it's unfortunate. I'd like to see more people that are, kind of in my age bracket with my experience to be in, in state government, but it's just because of those reasons, that's why you don't see a lot of them. That's why you see younger people and you see older people who have retired and, and can afford and have the time to do it. I was gonna say, this is an unpopular opinion, but I think it's the pay. I think for people that make, I don't know, are mid, but generally middle-class people, the, the prospect of taking a pay cut down to $37,000 is something that they can simply not afford to do, especially if they have families. Yeah, so, it's unfortunate that the, that really the, those people who who would like to serve but financially uh, don't have the means outside of their, their just a regular job. Uh, and, and on top of that, try to find a, a company that would hire you knowing that you're gonna be gone for six months out of the year and not be able to work and do do the job it's pretty difficult to find that type of arrangement but you're you're in you're in the arena so i salute you for your sacrifice you. to to your career and to your family you are house speaker pro tem we've had other people who have had this position in the past on the show but for people that haven't listened to those episodes explain what your your leadership role does and we'll kind of get to how it's become a very lucky leadership uh, role in a minute Sure. The, the official position of the Speaker Pro Tem in the House is you serve uh, kind of like as vice president. You're, you're second in command in the House of Representatives. 
uh, whenever the speaker is unable to perform his duties, the, the, the speaker pro tem is the next person in line that performs those duties. So in most cases, you see me, I'll be up on the dais whenever the speaker cannot be up on the dais uh, during, during session. But there are other times when the speaker's not, if the speaker's not in the building or not able to be here for whatever purpose, then uh, usually they default to me to run meetings and to, to you know, run the, the caucus. I was also going to say, as, as a member of House leadership, you probably are privy to a lot of very important conversations about policy and internal caucus politics as well. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. It's, you know, we all have our, our roles to play. The speaker has his jobs and responsibilities, and the floor leader has his responsibilities, and I have my responsibilities. But we, as a, as a joint leadership team, uh, we meet on a fairly regular basis, and then on an ad hoc basis, you know, we're constantly talking to each other about various bills and things that, are, that we need to uh, work on. Uh, we work as a team, and, and uh, I'm there to support the, the speaker and, and, and assist the floor leader as needed, and, and vice versa. I mean, when, when we're on the we're on the diet, I'm on the dais, and we're we're in session. Floor leader, you know, it's it's a choreograph uh, event, and the floor leader and I usually are, are communicating about how we're going to proceed, and and uh, he obviously directs the flow of the floor. But I'm also in charge when I'm on the dais on who gets called on and who doesn't, and. And I can also rule on points of order. And so there's, there's definitely a symbiotic relationship between the floor leader and the speaker and the speaker pro tem. I don't want to sound like an old fogey here at 34 years old, but I've covered a lot of speaker pro tems. And the first one I covered was Carl Bearden, mm-hmm. who had run for statewide office before, had, was thinking about running for state senate, decided not to, resign, became a lobbyist. Nothing came of his, po- his elected political career, Correct. even though he is still active in grassroots politics. Brian Pratt was the next person. He ran for state senate, lost to Will Krause. Then Shane Scholler lost his bid for secretary of state, but then he kind of broke this curse of speaker pro tems by becoming Greene County clerk. And ever since then, like, Pro Tems have managed to win at every other office they've done. Jason Smith is now a congressman. Mm -hmm. Uh, Elijah Har is obviously Speaker of the House. Denny Hoskins is now in in the state Senate. Um, Does that give you pause that you may become like a St. Charles County executive or a member of the Senate because you have this job or something? Or is it just a coincidence at this point? Well, I mean, you know, certainly I always, when I got elected to the House, you know, my first year or so, I kind of was trying to get a lay of the land and understand what, what my role was going to be in this body. And, you know, I've always been in leadership positions pretty much my whole life. That's something I've always aspired to. And I knew I would be in some type of a leadership position in the House. And, and I just thought that this was the path for me to take uh, was the pro tem position. And earlier this year, I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but it, it the Republican caucus, we actually elect our speaker elect a year in advance. So this year, we will be deciding who the next speaker will be, uh, probably in September. Uh, we may do it this August. I don't know. There's some talk about doing it in August, but probably in September, we'll elect our new speaker-elect. Mm-hmm. And, and my name, of course, obviously the, the floor leader, uh, Rob Vescovo, were being considered for uh, running for the speaker position. And, and I had really had not made my mind up whether I was going to run for speaker or not at that point in January. And so, um, you know, as things kind of progressed, I, I kind of felt like it was important for me to make a decision whether I'm in the race or not in the race for speaker. And I made that decision about a week before spring break that I was going to not run for speaker 
of the House and have um, and support um, Rob Viscova for that position. And I was going to just remain in the Speaker Pro Tem position because, quite honestly, I that that's not really what I was wanting to do. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in, in running for uh, Senate in three years, and that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, and I was just going to say, because of the decision of you not to run for Speaker, I would say uh, Majority Leader Viscobo is the overwhelming favorite. There's probably not going to be an inter-party caucus fight like there was the last time. And you all can focus on keeping your giant majority going into to 2020, basically. Yeah. Well, I saved a lot of people a lot of heart heartaches and, and tough decisions because you know Rob and I uh, both have the same kind of friends and and uh, you know he's he's well well liked and well respected amongst the caucus and I think I am as well and so it was not going to be an easy caucus election and so that was also what weighed heavily on my mind as well and I just felt like for me I had to do what was best for me and my family and. And when you run for speaker, that's a big job, and that requires someone who's 100% dedicated to that position. And I just wasn't prepared to do that because I, quite frankly, I'm, I got some business things I'm doing right now that I need to focus on this next year. And uh, family-wise, I have another kid going into college here in the next another year or so. And which I, school, I, by the way? Uh, I don't know yet. I have one at Mizzou right now. We have another one. I, I don't know where he wants to go yet, but yeah. uh, Mizzou's a good school. Uh, I went there. Yeah. My dad went there. My grandpa nice. went there. So you're a good Mizzou alumni. I am. My wife went to Northwestern, though. Oh, um, no, we won't hold that against her. I, I won't. You know, one thing I do want to ask is I mentioned the giant Republican caucus, which obviously is a big change from, like, when you started off in Missouri politics and Republicans were in the minority, or even, like, you know, 10, 12 years ago where the margins were a lot narrower. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've often heard, though, that having this giant majority, while it gives you some uh, cushion to pass more controversial bills. It also just means you have like lots of differences of opinions on issues and it could be kind of unwieldy to manage. I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that. I'm surprised I haven't asked more House leadership people that question, but it seems like it, having a giant majority is a gift and a curse in a way. Is that fair? I mean, what's your what's your feeling on that? I think that's a fair assessment. You know, certainly when you're at 116 or 114, we've got one or two members that have resigned. But uh, you know, when you have that large of a margin, you know, you need 109 just to do a, a veto override. So we're even way beyond that. Uh, that certainly creates a whole other uh, level of, of um, communication that you have to do with your caucus when you have that many people that kind of keep keep uh, in line as far as here's what our here's what our priorities are here's what we're trying to accomplish. When you're at you know 90 or you know 95, it's just it's just easier to manage that number. And you know that's the challenges that we face right now because you know. Republican Party. Not everyone is ultra conservative. They're not. They're not all uh, moderates. There's. We have a variety of different political uh, philosophies. You know, within that, within that party of ours that we have, and that and that's where, you know, not everyone's going to be in agreement on charter schools. Not everyone's going to be in agreement on right to work. I mean, when we when we passed right to work, and I was here when we passed that out of the house. You know, we didn't win that with a hundred and. 16 votes it was you know it was more like in the 90s yeah the low yeah. 90s and so you know that's that's the great thing about politics you know and everyone you run as a republican you know i don't agree with 100 percent of what the republican party believes i believe in probably about 90 percent of what it believes in and i support you know most of what it believes in but 
everyone has their different hot hot buttons and and so trying to manage those those uh different uh, special interests and and concerns and, and people run in a different district we've had folks that were down in in jefferson county I and mean, i can remember you know f- four years ago uh we we had flipped that county pretty much almost every seat was was republican and at that point you know there was still a lot of those republicans that still had to be very cognizant about you know the uh, labor issues and things along that line even so, in st charles county that can be an absolutely issue too. We'll be right back after this short break to talk about some of the legislation that you have sponsored and some of the big issues that the legislature will deal with in the last few weeks of the session. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. And we're back on Politically Speaking. Um, I want to talk about a bill that you, in particular, sponsored involving municipal spending that I found to be very interesting. From my my understanding, talking with you before we press record, it basically would require your municipalities to detail their expenditures in kind of a one-stop shop database. Um, Yeah, the the idea is it's House Bill 762. It's called a Municipal Transparency Bill. And this really was kind of spawned by the idea that... um, there was a lot of um, media uh, coverage over this issue. With the, right now, in most cities, if you want financial information, you have to do either go to city council and, and ask for them to give you that information. And in many cases, you have to do a sunshine request. If you're part of the media, same scenario. You almost have to do a sunshine request. And we found that it was a lot of these cities were very reluctant to provide that information, or they would say, "Oh, it's going to take us three months, and it's going to cost you three thousand dollars, or or even higher." to provide what we consider information that they should have already available and and be willing and able to do that. So the idea was to help the cities by saying, you know what, we live in modern age, we have have technology, we have the internet, we have already in Missouri, we have this wonderful resource called the Missouri Accountability Portal. It's online, all the state information's dumped into that and you can research a a lot of information about state uh, expenditures now we what we want to do is is help cities get their financial information at least their expenditures on this database that way uh, people that are in the media people that are just common citizens that want to be able to get information about expenditures from their city that they can go online easily without having to do a sunshine request and download that information and then that way it's more transparent so let's kind of walk through how this would practically work i live in richmond heights Maybe I want to find out the expenditures that Richmond Heights are paying for their parks or something. How would I go about doing that under this particular plan? Well, what happened is the, the city of Richmond Heights would, would take their information, their expenditures, so the, the, the expenditure amount, the date it was paid, to whom it was paid to, so the vendor, and then for what purpose was it paid for. Um, and that information would be uploaded to the Missouri Accountability, Por- Accountability Portal. And at that point, uh, you as a citizen could go online to the Missouri Accountability Portal. There will be a municipality button there. You click on it. Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll pull up the database. And at that point, you can do a download. You can search for the city of Richmond Heights and download all that financial information into a spreadsheet or something like that. And you'll be able to look and see how they're spending their money for 
parks or whatever specific topic that you're or issue that you're looking at and the idea this is really the building blocks because what we're trying to do initially i filed this bill a year ago and surprisingly enough the bill i had filed last year was even more robust of a database it was going to cost millions of dollars for the state of missouri to implement it so i had to this year to kind of kind of dumb it down, make it a little easier to implement. We, we really reduced it down to just the very essential information right now. But the plan is, is all, over time, we want to be able to make this a more robust database so that way all, even more data is dumped into it. But you kind of have to start at the building blocks, kind of get the foundation built, get the structure for this database um, created, and then we can start building on it. And I think in the long run, it's going to be, it'll be beneficial to the cities as well. Because think about it. If you're in the city of Richmond Heights, wouldn't you like to know what maybe the city of Maryland Heights is spending on their trash services? And maybe find out, well, if we're using XYZ trash collector, um, how much is that trash collector charging the other city of comparable size? So I, I don't remember the vote count on it, but I don't think this was unanimous. Is that, is that true? That is true. It was, the vote was uh, 85, and you, you need to have 82 to pass it out of the House. So, yeah, that was certainly a concern. The reason why that, that vote count was a lot lower was primarily because we had originally uh, made the bill mandatory. So, in other words, every, state, every city had to do it. When we went through committee, it got changed in a House committee substitute to voluntary. Mm-hmm. And then when it got back onto the floor, there was an amendment that put it on that I you know, had nothing to do with, but it was an amendment by another member that wanted to make it mandatory. And that amendment got on there and made the, made the, uh, the uh, bill mandatory again. And so that's where there was some heartburn with some members. Cause I, I was going to say, I would imagine if you're the Missouri Municipal League or your individual cities, when you see that it's mandatory, they kind of like swarm legislators and are like, this is going to be more work for us. This is going to cost us time and money. Well, and they all claim it's an unfunded mandate. They claim it's a Hancock Amendment violation. And there was all this scare tactics, and it's what's really kind of interesting because I find it. And I told a lot of my colleagues that were getting calls from their local cities, and I was like, "Well, why are they calling you and telling us? Are they, are they really concerned it's going to be that much of a additional work on their part? Are they trying to hide something?" And I, I try not to think of the worst. I try to think of the best. Uh, I think. Like it, as in anything, people are always reluctant to change, and these cities are they're, they're fearful of change, and they're 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 concerned that it was going to be an undue burden on them, which is completely false. But um, the bottom line is is that uh, the the bill is is now over in the Senate. Uh, we're very confident that it, it's going to get through the Senate. Uh, it may not stay as mandatory; it may get changed back to voluntary, which is fine. I think the the taxpayers all benefit at the very end because it does have a provision in there that you can. Um, the citizens, you know, like in your community could say, hey, we want this. We want the city to do this. You can petition the city and, and, and basically make them do it. So let's talk about some of the big issues that are going to come through the House over the next few weeks. We, we're, we're running kind of into, I don't want to say the home stretch, but close to the home stretch. It is early April, which means May is just around the corner. Let's talk about transportation first, because it seems like the governor put forward a proposal that would bond out $350 million to fix about 250 bridges. And I don't think there's really any disagreement that the bridges are in general transportation needs to be fixed or have more money attached to it. What I am sensing though, is there's a lot of disagreement over whether bonding should happen. And I know that house, uh, the house budget chairman, Cody Smith has put forward a plan that would basically 
to vote $100 million every year for four years for certain bridge projects. And there would be no bonding, so there'd be no interest attached to it. Mm -hmm. I know Senate leaders, I talked with Senator Schatz about this. I don't think that they're super wild about that idea, but they're trying to maybe come up with some sort of compromise where maybe bonding only happens if you get federal funding, and then there's $50 million that go directly to bridges. So that's kind of a verbose uh, summation of what's going on. What's kind of your feeling on how this issue ends up? Because I have to imagine there's going to be some negotiation between the House and the Senate, and there maybe there's some amalgamation of a lot of these ideas that come out as the final package. Well, first off, I will say this. I think all parties, the governor, the Senate, the House, I think we all realize that we have a, a great demand for improving our infrastructure and, and investing in our infrastructure. So I think we all want to fix the problem or at least start addressing the problem. And, you know, we tried, we've tried in the last year or so to do tax increases. Those went over like a lead balloon. And so the taxpayers are now saying, you know what, we're not going to pay for more taxes, so figure it out. Find another way to to address the, the roads and the infrastructure. So I agree with you. I think there will be ultimately a, a solution that will be worked out. But that's what's great about the political process. You know, the governor gave his idea. He gave his proposal. And and I appreciate that. And, and we're certainly giving it full consideration the Senate has spent a lot of time talking about it. We have not. Uh, I think the idea was originally for the Senate to really be kind of take the lead on that, uh, and then the House would, would follow suit and, and, and take it up. Uh, the House certainly has spent a lot of time over the last couple of years addressing transportation issues and trying to come up with solutions and ideas. I'm always in favor of thinking outside the box. I just heard an idea today. I won't go into all the details other than it's a, it would be one that would involve um, kind of a public-private uh, partnership. It would involve something that, that would have like a, some, some speed uh, lanes that could, be, that could be separate, and you, could, if you, you can choose to be on those and pay for those, but um, like going you know, from St. Louis to Columbia, you could have another two lanes. It could be not a toll road, but it's a separate lane, express lanes that you, you can choose to be on and pay for. Or you can just go take the regular, you know, Highway 70 route. And I think just having more creative ideas, thinking outside the box, instead of always saying, "Well, we just need to raise to raise taxes or raise, you know, the gas tax," mm -hmm. and and so I'm hoping that's what's happening in the Senate and certainly in the House. We're looking at doing that. I agree. I think it's. I don't think we're going to have. Oh, we're just going to do the bond, or we're just going to do 100 million. Although I, I, as a conservative, I generally prefer us to. If we can finance it as we go, then let's do that versus incurring the interest uh, expense. I'm, I brought this idea up with Representative Lavender, and I called it the Rosenbaum plan because I'm an egomaniac, first of all. <laughs> what about, like, bonding, but then making $100 million payments for four years and then paying it off in three or four years? You would still have interest in that. But I guess you would have all the money at once so you could fix the bridges. Now, I don't know if you can even do that. I know that there's constitutional parameters around bonding. But if you're talking about, like, bringing together both plans, that seems like literally co combining both plans. What, what do you think about that idea? Well, that's kind of an interesting thought. I, I'm not a bond expert. And but neither am generally, I. Generally, bonds, when you issue those, those are long-term long -term, uh, debt instruments. So financial instruments and generally they have a longer you know when I buy a bond if I was buying a bond I'd, I'm, I'm buying it with you're gonna get a lower return but it's also you, you know it's a higher guarantee on that 
um, and it's it's over a period of ten years or, or longer. Right, and then but just just to play double. That may up, be yeah. that may be what the only way that, that that may be why that wouldn't work is is that you couldn't sell that product in the marketplace to the who are whoever's buying those bonds. I was just gonna say like if you are a bank and you're basically taking on this debt and you're basically being told, well, we're gonna really accelerate these payments, which means you're not gonna get as much in interest. Mm -hmm. Well, then as a bank, and I, I'm not sure if it would just be banks that would be buying these bonds. But no, that's, they're institutional buyers yeah. that buy bonds. They may time. be like, well, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna take on this because we're not gonna make any money off right. of it. On the other hand though, we're, talk, we're not talking about like a privately financed deal. We're talking about taxpayer money here. So like, that's kind of the reason I'm hypothetically putting this idea forward, even though I think that there's complications around yeah. it. So, well, one thought I would say, and I don't know how much time we have left, but have you know, I, I've always said that if we're going to, if we're if we're really serious about fixing a lot of these roads, um, if we're going to go down that bond route, then why mess around with just 350 million dollars? Why don't we make it 750 million dollars, or maybe even a billion dollars, and let's let's really tackle it that way. And then throw in some other uh, other uh, projects that we know that need to be done. Like in my county, we've got one area on Highway 70 that's a major bottleneck that we want we'd like to get addressed, and that might be a way to help get some some folks to lean, you know, supporting that. You mentioned charter schools. The last time I was in Jefferson City a few weeks ago, I was being told that there was imminent debate on charter schools going to happen. But my understanding is there's been a lot of internal consternation over what that's what's going to happen i mean candidly i think a lot of suburban lawmakers of both parties are not super enthused about the idea of charter schools coming into their districts um do you think i know the senate has definitely debated that issue is it is it still a ways away for the house to bring that issue up until they come up with something that more people in your caucus can can get behind at this point I will tell you this: the the bill sponsor over in the house, she was involved in a very serious automobile accident. So right, right now we're already kind of handicapped with she's not even here to even defend her bill. So, you know, unless we we decide to hand it off to another member to to carry that that torch, that that's a major hindrance as far as where we're at in the house. You know, we have a lot of members that are uh, from the rural areas, and they're adamantly opposed to charter schools because they don't feel like they need them. Uh, you have a lot of former members that are, 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 we have members that are former teachers and former superintendents, and they're adamantly opposed to it. So we have a fair amount of our caucus that's not supportive. We, last year, we barely passed the, a charter school bill out of the House. It was pretty watered down. The speaker, uh, former speaker Todd Richardson got it out. And then, of course, it died over in the Senate. But this year, I, I'd have to say, given the time where we're at right now, I'd say the chances of that happening are probably less than 50%. Um, another issue that has obviously caused a lot of hubbub in St. Louis, city-county merger. I know that there's been some uh, pieces of legislation, and, and when I say legislation, the constitutional amendments to basically mm -hmm. require a local vote that have actually been moving through the process a little bit. Is I'm going to ask two separate questions on this issue. As a member of House leadership, and as somebody who's not from St. Louis or St. Louis County, and has really no direct stake in this issue, I'm interested to see how much uh, lobbying pressure you're getting as a member of leadership on this issue from both the pro and the con side. Because I imagine that if you want this merger to go through, you're probably not talking to the people that are adamantly opposed to it. You're, they're probably talking to people like you in-house leadership that it, that could be 
deciding whether this goes to the floor or not. So that's my first question. How much have you heard about this from various interests, both pro and con? Well, at the beginning of the year, I had a fair amount of visits from the different groups that were supporting the Better Together and those who are opposed to the city-county merger. Um, you know, I actually lived in St. Louis County on two different occasions. I, my parents are from St. Louis, St. Louis County, and so I have, a, and you know, I live across the river. We, we, you know, St. Charles County. Although I like to say I call it God's country, and we're, and sometimes it's great, great to tell people I'm not from St. Louis. I'm from St. Charles, but we're in the St. Louis metropolitan area, and you know what happens in St. Louis County and St. Louis City does have an effect on St. Charles County and Jefferson County and Franklin County and the Collar County counties. But, you know, from a leadership standpoint, you know, we've been we've been certainly um, uh, heavily lobbied early on that, that this is a big issue. They want to make this thing happen. Uh, I will tell you that in the last month or so, it's kind of died down. Uh, I think they're still trying to work through whether they think they've got a path to get this done. But um, bottom line is, is that, you know, a lot of the members uh, in St. Louis County uh, and even St. Louis City are not in favor of this. And so I think that that um, is kind of weighing on on leadership as far as, you know, do we really want to take this up? And a lot of us are more like we want the if it's going to be something that's going to affect, you know, you and your community, you should be making that decision. Why are we doing that decision at the state level? Um, and that's the exact proposal that's being considered yeah. now. Representative Plocker, yes. who's actually going to be on this show in the next week or so, has an amendment that would go alongside the Better Together proposal ostensibly that basically says you can't have a merger unless the city and the county vote for it or any locality right. vote for it, which I don't know what happens if both of those pass. I'm sure it'll go to court for like 100,000 years. <laughs> but I think the idea basically is to force a local vote or basically – nullify the statewide better together plan mm-hmm. um that's kind of the backdrop i am interested though because we've talked with county executive elman about this before and i think we've i've actually talked with about this with you one-on-one st charles for all the criticism to get for being like a far-off suburban uh, enclave actually structured its government a lot differently than st louis county there's a lot fewer cities all the police departments are very professionalized uh, county Executive Elman mentioned to me that the, the county police have gets, have gotten racial sensitivity, sensitivity training long before the Ferguson unrest. And also, there's only five schools, whereas you look at St. Louis County, there's like 88 cities, 20 or 25 school districts, lots of police departments. So I don't know if County Executive Elman has, has come down for or against this merger, but he certainly has come down through through his actions against bifurcating his county into a bunch of different directions. And I have to imagine a lot of people who represent St. Charles County, like yourself, probably look at St. Louis County and to some extent the city are like, maybe the Better Together plan isn't the way to go, but maybe something needs to happen. That's an assumption based on what I talked with with Elman. But it'd be interesting your perspective as, again, an uninteresting, uninterested observer on this issue. Well, my, my general perception of the whole St. Louis City and St. Louis County situation is is really one from a from a perspective of leadership in any organization whether it's doing well or doing doing poorly it's usually a, a result of good or bad leadership and and you know I'm going to throw one party under the bus I won't mention the party but there's been one party in charge of St. Louis City for over 50 years 
It's not the Whigs, by it, the way. It's not it, the it, Whigs. It's not the you know the Communist Party or any other. It's there's a, there's another party that's been running that city for fifty years. It's the Democrats, by the yeah. way. And and so you know one has to say and and it's dominate dominated by one party, um, and so you have to look at the results and and in business, it's very much results oriented and they've done everything they can to make that city not very business friendly, just. I think leadership, there's there's a leadership problem in St. Louis City and starting to be a leadership problem in St. Louis County as well. So I think until you fix those problems, I think doing the merger and everything else, you're just going to have leadership problems still at the big We have big cities that I can name off that have leadership problems, and they're not doing so well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the idea of merging cities, if you look at it from a pure just without the politics – it's absolutely ludicrous to have 90 municipalities, to have 90 different police departments. And, yeah, from an efficiency standpoint, no question. No one can argue logically that that you shouldn't merge those all together and have one unified um, police station, one unified you know city council, whatever. But from a political standpoint, it is absolutely just does not make sense because these people moved into these communities. I used to live in Glendale. Mm-hmm. I liked Glendale. Glendale, small little town. You know, had its own little police department. Has you know, it just you had that. I moved there for a reason, and people live in Chesterfield. They move out there for a reason because they want more space. They want to be able. To, you know, it just people live where they where they want to live. Unfortunately, um, unfortunately that you have that you have that freedom to do that. Some people don't, but um, to try to merge these, force these all together without some type of a political vote of the people that are being forced to do it to me is just un-American. My last topic that we're going to touch on quickly, um, I know there's been a lot of talk about uh, dealing with the new state legislative redistricting system that was done in Clean Missouri. Um, I've been saying on other shows, I don't think there's much suspense. I think that there w- that system will be put back on the ballot. It's just a question of whether lawmakers decide to do it this session or next session and what the actual package is. because. There's more than enough votes to do it, and I think you're going to have Democrats that ended up uh, uh, voting with you all on that. What's, what, what's your prognosis on that issue? Do you think that may be a 2020 issue that the lawmakers tackle, or do you think that this could be something that gets resolved this year and uh, put, gets put on the ballot for 2020 and in, in 2019? Uh, I think the idea is to certainly try to get this issue dealt with sooner than later. Now, whether we can accomplish that, I, I'm not sh- quite sure yet that we're, we're quite there yet. Um, there's still two, two trains of thoughts on how we go about doing that. Some, some are, are um, you know, you know there's, there's interest groups that are wanting us to focus just on the state demographer, and there's other groups that are wanting us to focus on this other issue. And so I'm not quite sure yet. It's still, we're still, I'll know more probably in another week or so kind of well, I think that's got a good chance of making it or not, but because we're we're st- we still really haven't even had a debate on the floor yet, so I mean, the bill hasn't even you know gotten to that point. It's going to be an interesting debate because you're obviously going to have Democrats who are going to be like, well, you're going against the will of the people, and we already voted on this. You'll probably have other Democrats, especially African American ones, that may be for you, may be still against you, and I guess. If this goes to the ballot, the, the, the opponents of the new state legislative redistricting plan are going to have to convince voters that the plan that was voted in in 2018 is worth repealing. Because if you can't do that, then this entire debate is kind of 
philosophical ones. Well, and I, and I think the, the, the idea of, uh, you say repealing, I think the idea is, I don't necessarily say that we, we would repeal it, but I'd say we would, would refine it mm-hmm. and maybe make some improvements on it to make it to where it's, it truly is fair and then it's not something that could be politically uh, manipulated. And unfortunately, I, I think by having the state auditor's office, which is ironically the only Democratic statewide office holder, be the person responsible for picking the state demographer. I mean, that just didn't look right. I mean, if, if it had been some other statewide officer, you probably would have had less arguments. Still, still doesn't make it right. Um, but the fact is, is that, you know, drawing up these lines, we, we didn't have problems with drawing these lines up before. These lines were, were agreed on by both parties for many years. Or and judges. It, or judge. And then, oh, the last time it was, it was approved by for the, judges. For the House, it was judges. For the Senate, it was a process that I don't want to go into now because it's, it's, it's way like, too confusing. It's like legislation. It's, it's you know, like making sausage. It's, it's ugly, but it, but it works. And, in you know, so ultimately, we're, we, we, you know, whatever. It's, it's one of those situations where we, we had something done by outside forces to try to manipulate our, our process of drawing lines. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. And thank you for bringing me into the house lounge. I told you yeah. before, I've never been in this room before. Well, and it is a beautiful room. Yeah. There's there's water, there's a microwave, there's historical like marble floors. Big it, round table here it, with lots of chairs around it. And uh, just I just, again, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank for all you, of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you either on Twitter, Facebook, or just get a hold of you uh, at your office? Well, there's lots of ways you can get a hold of me, but on Twitter and Facebook, uh, it's just, you know, John Weeman. Uh, uh, Facebook is, you know, at, what is it, my handle? I think it's John D. Weeman on, uh, on Twitter. So, um, and, and John Weeman dot, uh, dot com. So, um, and of course here, you can always go to the uh, house web and, and find me on, on there. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long. <laughs>